Fall Line by Michael Garon, Episode 25, Merger and Acquisition. I want to go back a moment to Togo because it's relevant to moving forward. When I was a volunteer there, I went to a parade in the capital. All of the provincial governors, called Chef Sears, rode in an open motorcade. I noticed that each of the men wore a unique but very similar headgear. The ornate masks consisted of two carved wooden faces worn atop the governor's own heads. Each was original, some adorned with feathers, others with animal bones. When I mentioned the distinctive commonality, someone said they were all made by the same artisan. The guy was said to have powerful magic and serious carving prowess. The person who told me this also knew the village the artisan came from. It was a town I'd heard of on the border with Benin. I realized I'd be passing within an hour of that village as I returned home. I decided to make a detour to see if I could find this guy. Sure enough, entering his village, he was quickly pointed out. He had a few carvings scattered about his shop, and he agreed to sell me one. It was a primitive rough-hewn figure of a man pounding on a drum. We talked for a bit over a pot of local beer, and I got around to asking about his masks. I steered the conversation to the headgear I'd seen the chef Sears wearing and asked if he might make me one. He hesitated, then changed the subject. I felt awkward enough that I decided not to bring it up again. I said goodbye and was headed for my motorcycle when he said, I'll have your mask ready in four months. Then he asked if I could pay half his asking price up front. Four months later, I went back to the village very unsure of what I'd find. I pulled up in front of his shop, and once again we shared a pot of beer. After a time, he asked me to wait for a moment while I went to get something. He returned with a two-tiered mask in the style I'd seen each of the chef's sears wear, but this one was unique as well. The lower of the two mask faces was painted with a startling shade of pink. He'd bordered the head with long hair and painted the chin with a beard. The huge eyes and parted lips lent the mask a menacing, diabolical air. Above the face, he'd carved a woman naked to the waist. She clutched a pair of huge pythons in her raised hands. Her long black hair, taken from a living source, sprouted from her head, and her bottom half was the body of a fish. I recognized her as the mermaid goddess Mami Wata, worshipped by a local cargo cult. Cargo cults originated in the South Pacific. Anthropologists noticed some islanders adopt a reconstruction of European behavior they'd seen. In one example, islanders cleared land in the form of airplane runways. They even lined them with fire pots to guide the airplanes in, as they'd seen the Europeans do. They expected that completing this ritual would cause treasure-filled planes to appear, just as it had for the Europeans. Togolese Mamiwata cult had a similar origin except the planes were sailing ships. Mamiwata arrived on sailors' tattooed arms and the carvings on ships' prows. The mask represents the true you, the carver said. When you wear it, you have three heads. On the bottom is your own living head. On the top is your protecting spirit. Between them, we trap your evil spirit. Your protector is Mamiwata, and one day she'll make you very rich. I thanked him for the unattractive headgear and headed back to my own village. I understood the power of the headdress as soon as I got home. Not a single villager would come into my mud rooms as long as the mask was visible. They'd shake their heads and point at it and tell me it was too powerful to be near. 
In fact, in the decade and a half I had that thing, no African ever agreed to be in the same room with it, even after I got back to the U.S. I'll return to the mask in a moment, but first I wanted to get back to my return to my company in the U.S. after leaving Madagascar. MNG agreed to have me back as vice president when I returned. I learned that Dave Newton had contracted lung cancer. He was my great friend, business partner, and mentor. It was very difficult to hear of his condition, particularly in terms of survival rates. The five-year survival rate for stage 1 lung cancer patients is only 45%. For those diagnosed as stage 4, only 1% will still be drawing breath five years hence. Soon after my return, I gathered my team leads. In a real Asperger's moment, I announced that we needed to envision a future without Dave. This pronouncement struck my team as insensitive, reprehensible, and cruel. I admit their sentiment caught me by surprise, but it didn't stop me taking my pronouncement beyond my team. I took to saying that while Jim and I provided the brawn for client delivery, Dave and Amy were the brain and heart. I lumped them together because they were inseparable. They had lived, loved, worked, and played together from the start. And now that Dave was sick and Amy was caring for him, neither one was very much around. It wasn't long until I told Dave and Amy how I felt. They brushed my lose-our-heart-and-brain metaphor aside, insisting that they'd always be around. But as time wore on, that was less and less the case. No one wanted to acknowledge that Dave was dying, so the company plotted on as if everything was fine. But in reality, we were stumbling. Meetings ended without decisions, often with the words, We need to bring this one to Dave and Amy. I pushed the line that we needed to play the hand we were dealt and make decisions where we could, but I suffered from a hard-earned reputation for being a jerk. Few colleagues were inclined to take my lead on taking charge, so the corporate lethargy ground on. Then I took badgering Dave to a whole new level. We've got three choices as I see it, I said repeatedly. One, you can get better and the two of you can resume your director's roles. Two, we can recruit some senior talent to replace your hearts and heads. Or three, we sell the company. One isn't going to happen, so that leaves two or three. Over a several months period, I sensed I was wearing them down. One day, after I'd been back about a year, Dave came in and said, Amy and I have decided we should sell the company. The pronouncement was particularly notable because Dave tended not to speak like this. He was too inclusive to use a phrase like, Amy and I have decided. They both worked hard to ensure our decisions were consensus-based. His blunt talk of selling took the air out of the room. Even I, who'd been pushing for this, felt myself gasping for breath. It was okay for me to say Dave was dying, but for him to allude to it, that was simply not allowed. He was a fighter, I reminded him. He didn't even know how to quit, but he told me this time I was wrong. He'd made peace with his limited future and wanted to ensure that he used his remaining energy to do what was best for the company. Once Dave made his mind up, there was no changing it. He poured himself into finding us a buyer. He analyzed our competitive landscape and figured out who had the most to gain by acquiring us. Then he set about wooing the top three candidates. He didn't tell them we were selling. Rather, he seeded them with reasons why buying a company like ours would be good for them. It didn't take long for the seeds to sprout. A rule of thumb is that professional services firms are worth half their full year's revenue. So with $40 million in expected revenues in 2010, we pegged our worth at $20 million. 
One of our prospective buyers was SRA International. They were a 7,000-employee company with $1.5 billion in annual revenue. We knew and liked them and had a shared history. When we formed the company, they'd helped us out by lending us office space. They wouldn't even take our offered rent payment two months later when we moved out. Side note, in 2015, Computer Sciences Corporation, CSC, bought SRA. Combined, the newly named CSRA had revenues of $5.5 billion and 20,000 employees. Giving the plot away, this number included 400 professionals from our staff. I had developed a quick no, slow yes adage about business. It said losses came as fast as a gut punch, but wins trickled in. Winning was more like maybe moving to probably. They came in so slowly you were never sure when they actually arrived. To my surprise, Dave got SRA to quickly bite. He landed the deal within a couple of months, but then my adage kicked in. The deal was more like a string of caveats. We'll buy you for $10 million, but we'll give you up to another $10 million if you reach this impossible level of new sales. And you do it every year for the next three years, without losing any key personnel, while transforming yourself to look exactly like us, without losing your identity because that's your brand. In the end, Dave delivered on every aspect of every stipulation and we walked out with 20 mil. When my first of several large checks came in, my first ever for over a million dollars, I felt like crying. The first check wasn't quite TFI, total financial independence I'd been striving for, but the trickled yes had begun. Over the course of the next 18 months, the money kept coming in. It eventually got to the amount I'd arbitrarily pegged as TFI. Fifteen years after taking the gamble of starting the company, we'd all won a major hand. We'd each walked out with a couple of million, except for Dave. He was once again proven right in trusting his gambler's instincts. His initial 75k investment netted him double our average take. SRA was determined to show that our acquisition had come with opportunities. To demonstrate, they pulled me out of our group and dropped me into their newly conceived proposal tank. I wasn't too thrilled about it as it took me out of my comfort zone and put me in a marketing role. But the proposal they had me working on was a $350 million contract to support all of USAID's software and systems need. They brought me on knowing I'd worked on USAID systems in the field. I'd also followed AID's IT operations with interest for several years. In fact, I'd read five years earlier about CSC's winning this very contract. I remembered wondering at the time what kind of person ended up running such a significant systems job. I even thought it might be something I'd like to do, but I couldn't imagine how it could ever come about. While a job of this size was definitely punching above our weight class, SRA seemed to have a good handle on the work, and they put an excellent senior guy in to run the bid. After grilling me for a while, he added me as his lead for software development and support. We slogged through a grueling round of proposal reviews and panel interviews. Then, to my surprise, USAID awarded us the contract. So I ended up running the very contract I was dreaming about. It was tough going from the start, but I was eventually able to make it all work. I assembled a terrific team, and in a short time, we learned to love the work. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Dave was putting the finishing touches on the merger. He worked tirelessly to ensure all of our staff were comfortable and well-placed. He also fought hard to get our vice presidents placed in SRA as vice presidents. 
This was difficult because the SRA title required a larger business base than any of us had. Even so, he got them to agree. Most of us were fearful that the acquisition would cause us to lose the M&G magic, but it was still intact two years into the acquisition, and we even managed to keep every one of our staff. Dave deserves most of the credit for this, and he did it in the same six months he went through chemo and open-heart surgery. On August the 11th, almost on the day he collected the final payment on his millions, Dave died. The turnout for his funeral was huge. Amy flattered me by asking me to do the eulogy, and she announced she'd endowed a charitable foundation in his name. A year later, Nancy once again pulled her, quote, career card. She let me know we'd be moving to Tanzania. Just before we left, we had an out-of-town guest for dinner. He saw my African headdress of Mami Wata and admired it. Then he told us about his own collection of occult objects. He said he was so serious about their power that he kept them on an altar he had built in-house. I had always felt conflicted about the mask. On the one hand, I suspected it deserved some credit for delivering its long-promised riches. But that idea was blasphemous. Also, I was superstitious enough to wonder if my giving the headdress away might result in my losing my payout. I decided the time had come to break this delusory bond. Our house guests left with the mommy water mask, and I'm happy to report at this juncture I still have the cash. I arrived in Tanzania with the kids in tow a month after Nancy arrived there. It was the 18th of August, 2004, my 50th birthday.